Uh, if you kind of take a look around, this is a, an interesting snapshot for us. It will be 10 years until Christmas is on a Sunday morning again. And so if you sort of look around, um, parents, like the kids sitting next to you might have their own kids by then, or they could be off at college. Um, I don't know, it's just kind of an interesting thing. We did this six years ago, just the way the calendar works. It'll be a decade, 2033, until we do it again. And so uh, it's a unique opportunity to get together on Christmas Day. Um, Certainly, some churches choose not to, and that's totally fine. Uh, As a staff, we chose just, you know, let's just do one service and get together and kind of capture the moment of uh, haste, haste to bring him loud. Loud means praise. Uh, exultant sort of public praise. This is an opportunity for us on Christmas Day to like hurry into here and offer praise to uh, the incarnate Savior. And so um, this is a a neat opportunity. We're going to do our final Christmas hymn this morning. uh, And I'm just going to sort of jump right into it. We do this the same way we've done the last few. Some history, kind of for those who may be interested. And then we're going to go to a passage of scripture that uh, offers itself or lends itself to the lyrics of O Come All Ye Faithful, which is going to be Psalm 95. So if you have a Bible and you want to open up to there. But the goal today is to draw a direct line from Psalm 95 to Revelation chapter 5. It's actually going to be a longer line than that from the book of Exodus to Revelation chapter 5. We'll make a couple little pit stops in John chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 3. But here's kind of the landing point this morning. This is, I'm actually borrowing this phrase. I'm riffing on something that C.S. Lewis said. So the landing point this morning is, allow your praise to complete your enjoyment of Jesus. We started this series with Joy to the World in Psalm 98. We're going to finish it in Psalm 95. So if you've got that there in front of you, let's read it together. This is what Psalm 95 says. Come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout triumphantly to him in song. For the Lord is a great God a great king above all gods. The depths of the earth are in his hand and the mountain peaks are his. The sea is his, he made it. His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness where your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was disgusted with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They do not know my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. That psalm ends with a thud. That's the way you would articulate that. We'll work our way through that here in a moment. Let's pray, and then we'll jump in. God, thank you for this morning. Uh, the chance to come together and celebrate the birth of Jesus, God, to take time as a church family on Christmas Day just to offer our praise to Jesus, baby in a manger, 
a man in ministry, a savior on the cross, a resurrected king out of the grave. God, we praise you for him. And in the middle of everything else we have going on today, Lord, we just want to kind of still our hearts here for a few moments and hasten into your presence to bring you the praise that you deserve. God, would you stir our hearts to worship? Would you help us to silence our minds, to hear from your word, to respond in obedience, God? We love you. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, a little history on O Come All Ye Faithful. The sort of like, how did we end up with this song on O Come All Ye Faithful is murky at best. Some think its origins date back to a group of Cistercian monks in like the 11th century. Some think it was written by St. Bonaventure in the 13th century. Some think it was penned by King John IV of Portugal in the 1600s. But if you were to open up a standard modern hymnal and look at what the page says, it would tell you that the words and the melody were written by a man named John Francis Wade in 1743. And so as a brief aside, Wade was an interesting figure. He was an Englishman who actually lived in religious exile in France. Why would an Englishman live in religious exile in France in 1743? Well, that's because he was Catholic rather than Anglican at a time when being Catholic in England was not something that many people chose to do. So he fled over to France and he made a living because he had beautiful handwriting. And so he was actually like a manuscript copyist. He would find old things and he would write them in his beautiful penmanship and then he would sell those and that's the way that he made a living. So when your modern hymnal tells you that the earliest known manuscript of O Come All Ye Faithful has John Francis Wade's signature in the year 1743 written at the bottom, does that mean that he wrote it or he copied it? Fair question. We know nothing else about his musical exploits except for the fact that the oldest living copy of this song that we have has his name at the bottom in the year 1743. What's most likely is that the words whether in musical form or as a poem, have existed for quite some time. Mr. Wade just happened to put his name on the bottom of the oldest piece of paper that we have. One other quick fact. A modern hymnal would include eight verses to this song. Four of those appear to be original, and they were written in Latin. So another question. Why would a Frenchman or an Englishman living in France in 1743 write four verses to a song in a language that no one spoke anymore? Fair question. There's no answer to that. But he's who gets credit. The lyrics didn't get translated into English until 1841. That's when another Catholic priest named Frederick Oakley took the original four verses from Latin to the English that we know and we sing today. O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Now, no one... Uh, speaks Latin. Some people learn it so that they can read it and then understand how that works its way into modern European languages. The only people who speak Latin at all anymore are people who took choir because your choir director forces you to sing things in Latin. And one of, 
one of like the handful of songs that I remember from my high school concert choir days here at Liberty High School is the song Adeste Fideles, which is the Latin of O Come All Ye Faithful. Adeste Fideles, Leti Triumphante Venite, Venite in Bethlehem. There you go. Come for Jesus, stay for the pastor singing in Latin. <clears throat> I don't know why that's one of the only songs I remember from a high school choir, but that Latin has always stuck with me. That's the original to O Come All Ye Faithful. The English is something that we got like a hundred years later or so. So Psalm 95, what does Psalm 95 have to do with that particular song? Well, I'm going to read it again, at least the first portion here. Come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout triumphantly to him in song. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. The depths of the earth are in his hand and the mountain peaks are his. The sea is his. He made it. His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. A little bit of context on Psalm 95. Now don't confuse this with the history of O Come All You Faithful. Psalm 95 uh, was used within like the, the Hebrew or Israelite calendar as something that they would read at the Feast of Tabernacles. If you wanted to read about the Feast of Tabernacles, you could go back to Leviticus chapter 23, verses 34 to 43. That's where Jewish law sort of lays down the foundations of what this festival is supposed to be. The CSB calls it the Festival of Shelters. Your Bible might call it the Festival of Booths. That's all the same thing. On our current calendar, that festival would fall in late September or early October. The Festival of Tabernacles was one of three pilgrimage festivals in which Israelite people would travel to Jerusalem in order to celebrate. Passover was one of those, then the Festival of Weeks, and the Festival of Tabernacles. It was a seven-day holiday during which the Israelite people would remember and celebrate their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. That would be from the book of Exodus. They'd go to Jerusalem and set up tents around the city booths, tabernacles, shelters, as a way of remembering and commemorating that period in Israel's history. So the Festival of Tabernacles celebrates people living in tents in the wilderness. So they would go to Jerusalem and they would set up tents. Now, what are they celebrating? If you're familiar with the book of Exodus, it may sound hard to believe, but that 40-year period was often sort of idealized by Israelite people as like the halcyon days of Israel. Man, we were out in the wilderness and God was dwelling with us in the tabernacle and he went before us in a pillar of fire and we were just out there in the wilderness relying on the Lord, which sounds kind of weird because they also grumbled there. A whole generation died and most of them wanted to go back to Egypt. So it's like this weird sort of juxtaposition. It's kind of like when we think really fondly in America of like the 1950s. It's like this time when like the pace of life was slower, but like 50% of houses had indoor plumbing. So like, cool. Jim Crow was still a thing. Most houses didn't have central air, but man, the 50s. Good time. That's a good time. 
That would be similar to this festival. What was the good part of that era? What was the thing that Israel was celebrating? Well, they were celebrating the very tangible presence and provision of God during their wandering in the wilderness. He was literally with them in a pillar of fire, guiding them during their wandering in the desert. He literally provided manna and quail for them so that they could eat. Those were the things that Israel would remember fondly and celebrate yearly. And so Psalm 95 became this kind of call to worship at the beginning of that festival every year. Israelites would travel to Jerusalem. They would gather there. At the beginning of that festival, you would go to the temple, and Psalm 95 is the thing that would be read. And what it provides is a call to worship and then a model for what that worship should look like. Come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord, the priest would read out. So it's going to kind of work our way through this, and I'm going to give like four pieces here that I think still provide a pretty good model for us for what worship should look like. You'll notice multiple times throughout the psalm that the word come is there. It's both an invitation and a command. It's like, hey, come on, but also, come on. This is where you're supposed to be. Let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Let us enter his presence is verse two. That is literally make haste, haste, haste to bring him loud. We sang that in the last song there. So the picture here is that Israel is supposed to like hustle into the Lord's presence, a summons to come to him with your praise, joyful shouting, shout triumphantly, enter his presence with thanksgiving, shout triumphantly to him in song. So piece number one here would be hurry into God's presence with praise. When we think of worship, we think of gathering in a place like this and singing songs. That's kind of piece number one here in Psalm 95. Come, make haste, hurry, come on over here. And then it goes on in verse three. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. The depths of the sea, or the depths of the earth are in his hands. The mountain peaks are his. The sea is his. He made it. His hands formed the dry land. There's why you would hustle into the Lord's presence or hurry into his presence with praise. He's a great God. He's a great king. And then there's kind of a few enumerated items there. He holds the earth, right? Mountains, seas, they're his. And he formed them. So he holds them, but he also formed them. He made them and called them forth. And he's this great king, so hurry into his presence with praise. But if you jump down... It's not just that you would hurry into his presence with praise because he's this great king and you're doing some kind of like servile type thing. Verse seven reminds you that there's also this intimately personal relationship. He's our God. We are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. So you're acknowledging God's greatness and his goodness. That'd be the second piece of this. Hurry into God's presence with your praise and acknowledge his greatness, but also his goodness. Keep the festival of tabernacles in mind there. What did God do for Israel both before and during the wilderness? He made them. He called a people to himself who were not a people, Abraham's offspring. And then he held them, providing for them, leading them, caring for them. Verse six gives just kind of like a string of verbs that are all about the posture. 
Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before our maker. So what's the posture of the praise? You're hurrying into God's presence with praise, acknowledging his greatness and his goodness. And the sense here, number three, is that you would like get low before God in your worship. It doesn't have to be physical. The Bible talks about acceptable worship happening in literally every posture you can think of. Laying prostrate, kneeling, sitting, bowing, standing. David is dancing at one point. But I do think there's value to physically expressing our worship, to doing something with our bodies that would illuminate what's happening in our hearts. That's why some people raise their hands, like God's greatness, like you're just like reaching out to him. It's why some people would hold their hands kind of like down and open that you'd be receiving from God in that kind of way. There's a physical aspect to that. But what really matters is that your heart is low before him. You might not be the most physically expressive person, like hands up or kneeling down or something like that might feel uncomfortable to you. The posture is not the main thing. The main thing is your heart, that your heart would bow down low before the Lord because of his greatness and his goodness and that you would hurry into his presence with your praise. Okay, so then what's like the outflow of that? The last little phrase in verse seven and then verses eight through 11 take this really weird turn where we go from like shouting to the Lord and being beckoned into his presence to do not harden your hearts as at Mirabah, as on that day at Massah in the wilderness where your fathers tested me. They tried me though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was disgusted with that generation. I said, they are people whose hearts go astray. They do not know my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. What just happened there? The thrust of all of that, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The thrust is that our praise ought to be matched by our obedience. That those two things actually go hand in hand. When you hear the voice of the Lord, in scripture, in prayer. We're to listen to that. And by listen, the psalmist and all of scripture means obey. Not just hear, but listen that elicits activity, obedience to the Lord. Just the other day, my wife and I spent a few hours with our niece. And uh, the last like 30 minutes... She's three, so some of you will understand this. The last 30 minutes, she went from being like the sweetest child for two hours to 30 minutes of like, what sort of chaos is happening right now? She was wearing just her diaper and she was running around the house just yelling, yoinks, yoinks. And it went for 30 minutes and my wife did everything. She like picked her up, tried to talk really calming to her. You know, I tried to like play with her a little bit, but it was just yoinks. Yoinks, and then dad walked in to pick her up. And Vera kind of came over, and she was still, like, really excited. She had all of this energy. Really, she hadn't taken a nap that day, so she was right on the precipice of a crash. And Trent was trying to talk to her to get her to calm down. And at one point, he said, I want you to look at me in my eyes and do what I'm telling you. Like, 
I want you to listen, but really what I want you to do is obey. Hurry into the Lord's presence. Acknowledge his greatness and his goodness. Let your heart get low before him in your worship. And then as the outflow of that heart posture, listen, obey, do what he is saying in his word. The reference there to two places is actually one place, Mirabah and Massah in the wilderness. That's during their Exodus journey. Exodus 17 is where those places are listed in scripture. And it's a place where Israel grumbles and complains about the provision of God. So God has Moses strike a rock to give them water. But the whole image in that story is that their hearts were hard, like stones. And they tested God instead of trusting and praising and obeying him. And Psalm 95 says, if you have hearts like that, the Lord was indignant, disgusted with them. And so those two places stand as evidence for why that generation didn't enter into God's rest, Canaan, the promised land. Look, most often we think about sin in terms of outward intentional behavior, but this is a reminder that what's really at the bottom of sin is a heart posture, a posture that does not listen, obey, God and what he says. So piece number four here would be to obey God from the heart. When we hear the word of the Lord and grumble against or complain or don't obey, we are undoing whatever verbal or even postural worship we might give. We hear the word of the Lord and we don't obey. Look, your verbal worship that you sing on a Sunday is one thing, even if your posture looks good, but you spend the rest of your life disobeying, how much worship are you actually giving? So put the whole thing together. It's the festival of tabernacles. All of Israel comes to Jerusalem. They go to the temple at the beginning of this and the priest steps forward, he opens up or he unrolls a scroll and he reads from Psalm 95. Come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Hurry into the presence of God with praise. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. The depths of the earth are in his hand and the mountain peaks are his. The sea is his. He made it. His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. Like We're acknowledging his greatness and his goodness. We're bowing and worship and kneeling before him. And today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. We're obeying from the heart. That is the biblical way of worship. This is the God who called Israel as a people, who dwelled with them and held them in the wilderness, who has provided for them and ushered them into their promised land. Now, would be the right time to ask a very fair question. What in the actual world does any of that have to do with, oh, come all ye faithful? We're going to take a couple of minutes to do what is called biblical theology. And that just means we're going to take an idea and sort of trace its plumb line all the way through scripture. And I am going to try my uh, level best to not get like nerdy excited about this. 
But even as the pastor, sometimes the like unity or the cohesion of the word of God absolutely astonishes me. And so we have this feast of the tabernacles, celebrating God's presence and provision. Exodus tells the story of it. Leviticus lays down the festival. Psalm 95 is written to be part of that celebration. It's all about presence and provision. And there's this pattern of worship in response to God's presence and provision that's laid out for us in Psalm 95. So if you've got a Bible there in front of you, flip to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 is the least read version of the Christmas story. It's probably the least popular rendition of Jesus' entrance into the world. But this is what John chapter 1, verses 1 through 16 say. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory as the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. Okay, humor me here for a second. But what do you think the word dwelt in Greek means? Tabernacled. The word became flesh and set up a tent among us. He tabernacled with us. He pitched a tent, encamped. Like, here you've got Jesus, the word, forming everything, and then dwelling with his people. Matthew chapter 1 is a more popular rendition of the birth of Jesus. And so like maybe John is just stretching things a little too far here, right? Or maybe there's Tim's looking too hard into the Greek words because he's a nerd. But keep that background in mind. And let me remind you of how it is that Matthew tells the story of Jesus' birth. You don't have to flip if you don't want to. This is Matthew chapter 1. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. 
Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophets. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will give him the name Emmanuel, which is translated, Matthew, so helpful here, God with us. Matthew picks that up, pulls a prophecy from Isaiah that says the name of this child is going to be Emmanuel, God with us. John says, dwelling with us, presence, here with his people. What is God via his word through Matthew and John highlighting? That Jesus is the presence of God with his people. But both also hint at the provision, right? John, he's giving light and life. We've received grace upon grace from his fullness. Matthew, his name will be Jesus and he will save his people. He's going to provide life. has to be some sort of biblical coincidence, right? Certainly that can't all be tied together. But would you believe that Psalm 95 is quoted in the New Testament? One time in Hebrews chapter 3. If you've got a Bible, flip with me. I'm going to start reading in Hebrews 3, verse 1, and I'm going to read the entire chapter. Therefore, that's about Jesus being, you know, like having humanity and uh, being of flesh and blood. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was in all God's household. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as a builder has more honor than the house. Now every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household, as a testimony to what would be said in the future. But Christ was faithful as a son over his household. And we are that household if we hold on to our confession in the hope in which we boast. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked to anger with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my anger They will not enter my rest. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be any of you, uh, there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage each other daily while it is still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. For we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. As it said, today if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. There's a lot there. And as much as I would want to like unpack every little nugget of that, we did that a couple years ago when we went through Hebrews verse by verse. But here are the highlights. Jesus is faithful over his household and we, the people of God, are that house. We are his people, his dwelling, his tabernacle, his presence is with us. 
Then there's the Psalm 95 quote from the end of the Psalm, the part that's kind of confusing, reminding us that we are to hold tight to being in that household by our obedience, an obedience that displays the reality of our heart. So don't have hard hearts like Israel in the wilderness. Why? Because Jesus has something for you. Chapter four, he's got the promise to enter his rest. 40 years of wandering in the desert with the presence of God and the provision of God, all with the hope that one day they would enter into the promised land, the land of God's rest, Canaan. And now the author of Hebrews pulls all of that forward and he says, oh, you've got the rest, all right. It's Jesus. Like that's the rest. He is the presence of God pitching a tent among you in the household and he has rest. Like he is both the presence and the provision. And so what would Jesus be worthy of? Us hurrying into his presence with praise, acknowledging his greatness and his goodness, getting low before him and obeying him. Finally, I said all of this was gonna end in Revelation chapter five. This portion of Revelation is the first time where the lamb makes an appearance. It says, then I saw in the, in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took out, or took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell face down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased a people for God by your blood from every tribe, nation, and tongue and people. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. And they said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. What happens when the lamb steps into their presence? They fall down before him acknowledge his greatness and his goodness because he purchased a people. They literally get low before him and they worship. 
allow your praise to complete your enjoyment of Jesus. Little confession, I didn't sing in Latin earlier so that you would be impressed with my memory. Oh, come let us adore him, the chorus of that. Oh, come let us adore him. In Latin is venite adoremus. Psalm 95 has a shorthand name. It isn't listed in your English Bible, but modern day Jewish individuals and Hebrew scholars today know Psalm 95 by a single word, the venite, the summons, come. That's how they talk about Psalm 95. Come on, people of God, hurry in. Acknowledge the greatness and the goodness of God. Get low in his presence. Be obedient in his worship. So, venite adoremus. O come, all ye faithful. Adeste fideles. Worship him. Why? Because it's Christmas. And there is your presence and provision. A baby born unto you in order to save. Heaven is literally praising right now, today. Why? The presence and the provision of Jesus. The Feast of Tabernacles is over. We don't go to Jerusalem to celebrate that. Why? Because the son has pitched a tent among his people and he's always there, always present, always providing. Oh, come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Venite, hurry, come in here, sing, bring your praise, and allow your praise to complete your enjoyment of Jesus. Why would our staff choose to have church today? So that we could allow our praise to complete our enjoyment of the birth of Jesus. That's why we would do that. This is a little book by C.S. Lewis, um, Reflections on the Psalms. It's fantastic. In the middle of it, he's got a chapter entitled, A Word About Praising. And he starts by talking about the fact that when he was first coming to Christianity, he found it really odd that God would demand that people praise him. It's Uh, sort of a similar idea to the fact that my wife hates it when I try to bait her into a compliment of me. I like affirm myself trying to get her to affirm me. She hates that. C.S. Lewis said he was really confused by that when he was first uh, learning about Christianity. He didn't understand why God would do that. And then a little later in the chapter, he says this. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. Just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't it lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. This is so even when our expressions are inadequate, as, of course, 
they usually are. The Scottish Catechism says that the man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is fully to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him forever. The Jewish sacrifices and even our own most sacred rites as they actually occur in human experience are like the tuning promise, not the performance. Hence, like the tuning, they may have much Uh, They may have in them much duty and little delight or none, but the duty exists for the delight. When we carry out our religious duties, we are like people digging channels in a waterless land in order that when when at last the water comes, we we may find ourselves ready. I mean, for the most part, there are happy moments, even now, when a trickle creeps along dry beds and happy souls to whom this happens often offer their praise profusely. Allow your praise this morning to complete your enjoyment of Jesus. My longing for you as pastor is that every day of your life, you would enjoy the literal snot out of Jesus. Like in everything, all the time, that you would enjoy every last bit of what it is to live in relationship with Jesus. And that necessitates praise. I don't know what you thought of this series like over the last month or so. It's a little different for us. It's been kind of unique. It's topical. It's got like history and hymn study to it. We've been doing historical theology and these biblical theology things. And on top of that, you may not be a person who feels like they really connect with God through song. You might be someone who feels like you get more uh, out of your time with the Lord in his word or in prayer or whatever the case might be. But our hope over the last month has been to connect the head and the heart in your worship so that you enjoy him fully and that your praise would be part of the means by which you enjoy Jesus. And so this morning we wanted to get together in order to allow our praise to complete our enjoyment together because he is present among us and he has provided for us that which we ultimately need, salvation. Amen? Amen. So we're gonna do something incredibly uncomfortable right now. I'm gonna ask you to stand. Todd, if you would put the lyrics to O Come All You Faithful up there. We're just going to sing this a cappella. And we're going to enjoy Jesus together, okay? All right. I'll start us, but please join in quickly. Okay. And we'll do it in English. O come, all ye faithful,
was awesome. Maybe we should do the next two songs a cappella as well. And what a privilege it is to be able to sing songs of worship to him. Amen? Amen. Uh, let's pray together. God, I pray that you would give us hearts that long to truly worship you. God, hearts that want to just get into your presence all the time and give you the praise that you deserve because you are a great king. You're the one who formed the earth and the seas and the mountains, God, but you're also the one who holds them. God, would you give us hearts that are humble, low before you. God, a posture that is just continually kneeling and bowing before you, God. Would you give us hearts that listen and obey. God, in this morning on Christmas, God, just give us the reminder that the baby in the manger is the one who forms and holds. The baby in the manger is a great king. The baby in a manger is our shepherd and we are his people. God, would our hearts overflow with praise as we enjoy him today. How we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here this morning. Uh, we'll do it again in 10 years. What do you say? All right. Hey, real quick before you go.